Please join with me in the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 23. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Here ends the reading of God's word. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for your word that is our bread, our sustenance, our truth, shines light on our hope of, for today and our hope for things to come. Lord, we thank you for these words that remind us, not our will, but yours be done. Lord, we thank you that we have the means of grace, the preaching of your word here today. Lord, we pray that your hand would be on Pastor Cody as he preaches your word. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear your word and eyes to see. That we would be prepared to take in your word. Amen. In 1678, one of the possibly greatest pieces of Christian literature was written by a gentleman by the name of John Bunyan. You would know the tome he wrote, Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory on the Christian life. Let me quote for you from Pilgrim's Progress a section entitled The Hill Difficulty. Quote, I beheld then that they all went on till they came to the foot of the hill Difficulty, at the bottom of which was a spring. There were also in the same place two other ways besides that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand, the other to the right. 
at the bottom of the hill, but the narrow way led right up the hill. And the name of the going up the side of the hill is called difficulty. Christian now went to the spring and drank thereof to refresh himself. Bunyan quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 10, They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And then he began to go up the hill, saying this, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I, by, for I perceive the way to life lives here. Come, pluck up, heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, we have a devotion to God. First and foremost, to follow Jesus Christ. And in that following of Jesus Christ, there are ups, there are downs. And yet, our devotion to God should not stumble by the ups and the downs, but instead be energized as we behold His faithfulness to us during those times of up or down. Now, Paul in Acts 18, has come to a place, we have left him in the middle of a place, even last week, at an up, and he will have a down, and then he will have an up again, at least in the view that we might have of his life. If you're looking with, your, lo looking with me at your Bible, uh, you'll find in Acts 18, our text beginning in verse 12, we are dropped in the middle of what seems to be, if you've just joined us in our study of Acts 18, in the middle of a fabulous drama, with Paul having a front seat in these first few verses, 12 through 17, of what's taking place, of what God is doing. Note for me, if you will, uh, verse 9 through 11. This is the context of which we have come from. Uh, Paul had been doing ministry in Corinth for as many as 18 months. And in these 18 months, uh, he had seen some good times, he had seen some difficult times, and yet we left him last week having been encouraged by this vision where the Lord speaks to him late at night. Verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And we noted last week the promise of God to his people from the beginning of God talking to his people is this promise to Paul here, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And Paul finds himself maybe even questioning as we open our text in verse 12, as to whether or not God will be faithful to his promise. I think we must note something that is taking place by way of God's proclamation, his word to Paul in verses 9 and 10. And this is what I want you to note. The desire of God is singularly this, 
that the name of his son is proclaimed to all the earth as the supreme worth of all creation and for all eternity. That's God's singular desire for Paul to know. That's what God wants Paul to proclaim. Notice what he's not saying here. Paul is, I'm concerned first and foremost about your health and about your wealth. I'm not concerned, Paul, about whether it's difficult for you or easy for you. I want you to continue speaking about my son, Christ. He alone is the one I desire to be proclaimed. It is his worth and glory that I want everyone to know about. Paul doesn't come away from this vision thinking, I feel so warm. I feel so comfortable. I I know God is going to, to allow it to be easy for me. No, no, Paul doesn't come away from anything other than knowing God wants me to proclaim Christ. And thus he does. You see even there in verse 11, Paul's responsibility under the will of God. He knows God's will is to proclaim Christ and not be silent, and he does it. And he's assured that there are many people in this city of Corinth that will know his name. And yet he is faithful. What is our responsibility during our time of difficulty even now? was to proclaim Christ. We preach and we trust. And then we proclaim and then we trust. And we allow God to bear out His will and the fruit He desires. Now, I think the, 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 the front row seat, if you will, if you've ever been involved in a drama production, uh, the best seat in the house is not the front row right in front of the stage. Uh, the best seat in the house is really Uh, the seat that the main players have as they observe the other actors. Uh, Maybe you were involved in a drama production at some point and and all the rehearsals that go along. And then you find yourself in the middle of that play. Maybe it's the first night, maybe it's the 15th time you've done this play for an audience and you're sitting there as one of the main characters or as a bit player in the whole narrative and you're observing the lines being spoken by someone that has done it countless times and you think, that's not part of the script. They forgot. Now nobody else in the congregation, nobody else in the, in the audience knows what is taking place. They don't know the person is now ad-libbing and they get to watch to see what is actually going to take place. That's exactly what Paul, that's exactly who Paul is at this place. He, he, is, he is seated as a main player in the midst of a grand narrative and, and things are progressing in this story around him of which he has no influence. He knows the script. He knows what God has said will take place. Verse 9 and 10. No one will attack you to harm you. And yet the entire crescendo of the story is Paul will be attacked or harmed. And Paul's thinking, how's this going to play out? Notice what takes place. Verse 12 there. Gallio, Roman history tells us he was in power, AD 51 and 52. He was the chief judicial officer. He was the governor, if you will, of the region of Achaia. That is, it's roughly the southern half of ancient Greece, was under Roman rule. And Gallio was, was the man who was in charge of all that. Corinth was the administrative center of this region. 
And Gallio was assigned to oversee the administration and the military responsibilities of this area, and he was to report back to Rome. Uh, Apparently, history tells us that the environment, the climate of that region did not sit well with him. He didn't reign there for long. He ended up back in Rome where he served Nero, and he ultimately, he found his death in a joint conspiracy against Nero in 65 A.D., Now, this man is seated at his tribunal. That is his judgment seat, is in the middle of the marketplace. It was in open air. It's actually been excavated by archaeological digs. They've uncovered it in Corinth, and you could see where in the midst of the marketplace he would have been sitting. Everyone could have been hearing and seeing what is taking place. And the Jews who have hated Paul have made this united attack on Paul and they've brought him before Roman rule. Note what they say, verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, and and we must stop there. Imagine Paul hearing the false accusation against him He's actually been proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the law. Uh, This is a kangaroo court. They're seeking to get Roman rule to shut down the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is a master at public speaking. Paul knows exactly what needs to be said here from the law to defend his position. He opens his mouth to say something and... The Roman governor interrupts him. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to yourselves they refuse to be a judge of these things. Apparently this man was known to be, Gallio was known to be quite gracious I don't know, the the humor in me uh, gave thought to Paul opening his mouth, getting ready to say something. Gallio interrupts, makes this declaration, finishes the declaration, turns to Paul, Paul, you're going to say something? Oh, no, no. Thank you. You said exactly what needed to be said. Paul, having this front row seat, he would go on later in Acts 23, 29. To be charged with the same thing. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Acts 25, 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Paul would go on to write to his protege, Timothy, and note the fact that what Gallio is saying here this matter of of words and names, he actually encourages Timothy, don't get caught up in this. It's about Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 4. He is puffed up with this conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, Timothy, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers paul had this front row seat 
to the work of God who sovereignly was protecting him. He knew what God had promised. He knew what God had told him. He knew by God's grace he had faithfully, to the best of his ability, obeyed him and continued to speak. And yet here he was being threatened with attack. He was being threatened against, with harm and he sees himself actually set free by a Roman citizen. Paul being powerless at this point. Uh, Paul released from his ability to speak. Paul being actually cut off in a moment of being able to use the strength of his oration skills. Paul being cut off from his ability to lay claim to his Roman citizenship. Paul has no time in this moment to defend himself. And yet God, in his faithfulness to Paul, in a peculiar twist of God's sovereignty, saves him. God uses Roman rule to protect Paul for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God does this all the time. He, he draws us into places where he manifests his peculiar sovereignty. He does things where we, we, we look at all of the players, we look at all the way things are going, and we're thinking, there's just no way this can end well. 11th hour, 59th second, he twists it. And he shows himself to be sovereign. We can think of other places in the Bible where he, he does this. Think of the suffering, the difficulty of maybe the life of Job. Why, why does God allow Paul to find himself at, at the end of seemingly a possibility of escape? Why does God allow Satan to utterly devastate every part of Job's life? Why does God allow us to be under this situation where we can't get together with one another? My answer is this, and it's not mine. I think it's the Bible's, but prove, prove me wrong if it's not. Because the most powerful witness of God's glory to, watch, to a watching world in the power of Satan is the Christian who, having been born again by the Spirit, refuses to take his eyes off the God who has sovereignly allowed such pain in his life. Eyes not of hate or spite, but eyes of love and joy and delight. That's what I think Scripture screams at us. That God allows these type of things in Paul's life and in your life where he brings us to a level of powerlessness in order that the world might know that we're not that important. But Christ is all glorious. He has saved an unimportant, relatively people to proclaim his glory. Perhaps God has you in a place of powerlessness. And there's a lot that are in that place, even now. Financially, physically, 
relationally, socially. Where all that we've ever trusted or that you've put your trust in is unavailable to be used by you. You put your trust in your stock market market portfolio, that's probably shredded. What about your potential to, to earn a paycheck? That might be pressed against. Uh, what about the fact, as a, as a preaching friend of mine said last week, you have eaten free-range organic chicken and blueberries your whole life, and yet that can't protect you from the coronavirus. What about all that we have used in our power And God strips away. What has he done in your life? Without a doubt, he delights to do these things, to put his children in very tight spots where all we can do is watch him. Is he doing that with you these days? And let me suggest that there's never a better place to be, and yet let me also suggest that maybe there's never been a place more uncomfortable. It's ironic, in the economy of God, the most uncomfortable places are often the most safe places because they're stripped of what we can do and we're left only with God. Alistair Begg puts it this way, if dependence upon God, is what he's suggesting, if dependence is the objective, if that is the goal, then weakness, he says, is an advantage. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. Ooh, that flies in the face of our desire. We don't want weakness, and we certainly want control. What about you this morning? You might be saying, yes, I want to be that Christian who has his eyes set her eyes set entirely upon God in the midst of my difficult situation right now. And yet I am suffering and I don't feel that longing. I don't have that passion for him that I so desperately want. And I'm not suggesting that there are not hard days. Job certainly has them. Paul certainly has them. We all do. We're all sinners. We're not perfect, but we can do a diagnostic checkup of our hearts. And let's do that now. How often are you longingly looking to him? Because so often I want the feeling of pleasure in God alone in the midst of all my difficulty, absent the necessity of of working toward that, of looking longingly to him, of seeking him in prayer, of going to him in song, of opening my Bible. I want passion for Christ Absent the word. We all do. But how often are you longingly looking to him? How often are you lovingly looking to others? I'm not suggesting lovingly looking to others for them to bail you out of your difficulty, but lovingly looking to others in the midst of your difficulty. Let me tell you, there's always someone that's suffering. That's the nature and the economy of this world. It is not difficult. In fact, we're blind not to look around and just see, oh, there's someone else suffering. And we have the pride oftentimes to think, well, they're suffering more or less than me. Skip that. 
How can you lovingly look to see how you could help another? Uh, Some of the greatest saints I've ever met, probably the world will never know. Books will never be written about them. Their names will never be placed in, in the annals of world history as a great Christian. But they're marked by how they suffered in times of difficulty. You'd never know their level of pain because their level of love for those around them. They're constantly thinking of others. If you ask them how are they feeling, they'll tell you. But that's not their first word on their lips. They suffer so well. How often are you lovingly looking to help others? And then finally, how often are you sinfully looking to yourself? In these days of quarantine, it's being revealed to all of us, I think, about the nature of our habits and pleasures as a culture and that we're really quite self-absorbed. Our very life seems to be about how can it please me? And so when you take away sports, when you take away education, when you take away job, when you take away social interaction, when you take all those things away, what are you left with? I'm afraid we don't really like what we're left with. I don't know if you sinfully looking to yourself. My, my family has had the joyful experience to not have the internet over the last couple of weeks. We have to go up to a place to get the internet. We used all our data up in like the first two days, so we've not had internet for like 12 days at our house. It's phenomenal how much time we spend on the internet. These things are a means of grace, certainly, but they can also be a means to feed our sinful longings, our sinful lookings to ourselves in the midst of difficulty. Before we we move to verse 18, let's just note one thing. One of the benefits of God placing us in the front row seat to his faithfulness in our lives is that we get to see miracles take place when the narrative seems to only be able to end in tragedy. Look at verse 17 of your text. They all seized Sosthenes. Okay, this is the gentleman who is a a ruler in the synagogue. Uh, This is a, a man that should be most respected by the Jews. The Jews are so angry that Gallio has not judged in favor against Paul, that they seized their own leader, they hauled him into the public marketplace right before Gallio where he can witness what they're doing, which is unlawful, and they beat this man. And Gallio pays no attention to any of this. You can see the hatred that is just being fueled by his unwillingness to submit to their kangaroo court. What do I mean by a miracle that seems to potentially end in tragedy because is not this tragic, this man, Sothenes, being wrongfully beaten? Scripture doesn't bear out whether or not this man knew Paul before this time. I think we can surmise that he does because Paul is, is a next-door neighbor, if you will. Uh, Paul has uh, done the work of proclaiming the gospel to Crispus, who was the previous ruler in this synagogue. I don't think we can uh, doubt in any way that Paul has also been proclaiming the gospel to Sosthenes. As to whether or not he's a believer before this beating or after, we don't know. But what we must note is that God 
uses this time to actually draw this man Sosthenes to himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writing back to the church in Corinth. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and note, and our brother Sosthenes. In the midst of what seems to be a tragic ending, in what seems to be uh, riotous living, God either strengthens the faith of one or draws one to himself. It would be interesting to note how God, and we might see this and we can see this borne out, I believe, later on, one day when we are in glory, to see how God used the suffering of Sosthenes to build this early church in Corinth. Paul had a front row seat in 12 through 17, but let's move to the second section here in our text. In 18 through 21, Paul is going to willfully, willingly follow God. Willfully, willingly follow God. Now, verse 18 should be a shock to us. It should be a great surprise to us. Because here there's been a near riot. Here there's been a place where Sosthenes was beaten. Paul should have been beaten. And yet, he wasn't. It doesn't mean that the tone and tenor of the, Rome, of the Jews against him has calmed down. In fact, it probably has sped up. And yet, Paul stayed many days longer. And after a time, notice we don't know how long that time is, but he's there for some time. He takes leave of the brothers. He takes leave of the church. And he leaves for Ephesus. Or he sets sail for Syria, it says, which is where Ephesus is. And following down all the way back down into Antioch. He takes with him his two friends. We saw them at the beginning of chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila. And at this port, Sennacherib, which is the eastern port city of Corinth, remember that Corinth was was up off the sea uh, some small distance, and it stood between two ports, two seas meeting. There was actually an overland ship route. Sennacherib was the eastern port city of Corinth. There was another one on the western side. And Paul is departing there, and right before he departs, note, he cuts his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, certainly the question has to be asked, uh, what is this vow? Paul ends a vow here. What vow is it? What can we learn about it? A vow in the Scriptures is an expression of devotion to God. And typically in the Old Testament, it was always in the equation of, if we do this, then, God, you might do this. Or if, God, you do this, then we will do this. Turn in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, verse 20 and 22. You'll note the if-then equation of these vows of devotion to God. Jacob is making a vow here. It says this, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, And will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house and place. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. 
In Numbers chapter 21, verse 2, we see another uh, similar type of vow, if, then, but this one made by a nation. Numbers 21, verse 2, And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. In the Old Testament Scriptures, to not complete a vow was far worse than not making a vow. Uh, you can think of the, the situation in Judges chapter 11 where a man of God, a, a warrior of God, uh, who, who asked God and made a very rash vow that if God would give the Ammonites into his hand, the first thing that crossed his threshold, the front door of his house, when he returned victorious, he would sacrifice to God. The, ra- the, the vow was made and he carried it through. And the first person to cross the threshold upon his return in victory was his daughter. To, complete a, to not complete a vow in the Old Testament was far worse than not making a vow. And Numbers chapter 6 is probably the text that we're most familiar with when we think of vows in the Old Testament. This was referred to as the Nazarite vow. It was a vow of separation to the Lord. Uh, men of God would separate themselves from that which is around them unto the Lord, and it was marked by a number of particular things. One was not, the, was the not drinking wine, uh, staying away from that which was dead, allowing their hair to grow long. And we could see here in chapter 18 of Acts, uh, Paul has allowed his hair to grow long, was Paul's vow, a Nazarite vow, was it a vow of separation to the Lord? And I don't think Scripture gives clear enough evidence either way. In fact, all the study that I did, depending upon the commentary you read, some say yes it was, some say no it was not. And rarely in the New Testament do we see vows appear. But whatever Paul's vow was for, it ended with him giving this haircut and we can be sure that the purpose of the vow why he took the vow whatever the vow was was in order that many would come to faith in Christ first Corinthians chapter 9 19 to 23 Paul writing back to the church in Corinth for though I am free from all I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul has made this vow and he has concluded the vow. I can trust and know for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. And he leaves there. He he arrives in Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila. He goes to the synagogue and continues his work of reasoning with the Jews. The Jews there seem to be receptive to him. They ask him to stay longer, and he declines. Verse 21, note of what he says as he takes leave of them, quote, I will return to you if God wills. And he sets sail from 
Ephesus. I will return to you if God wills. The word Paul is communicating here is less important about the words he's saying and much more about the heart attitude he is communicating. It's an attitude, a heart attitude of humility. Paul understands we as Christians from the Word of God understand that our entire life is being guided. Our entire life is being planned. It's being stopped, started, diverted, switched, changed, moved, all by the secret will of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul is going to use this idea of the will of God when he writes back to the Corinthian church. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. For I, not, for I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. He would write to the Roman church so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul was convinced that every turn he took, every decision he made was known by God and was according to God's will. And so he would plan, I hope, I want, if God wills. It's not just some phrase. I, I hope we can come uh, to your party on Saturday afternoon if the creek don't rise. That's not what he's saying. It's not some just verbiage he spits out. He is convinced of the sovereignty of God in his life. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And yet for some of us, at times all of us, stay up late into the night sinfully seeking to figure out what might or might not take place. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. He has revealed all you need to know to be ready for those secret things. God has revealed everything you need to know in order to be ready for whatever his secret thing is. And he's revealed all you need to know to be saved from all our sinful responses to those secret things. He has revealed all you need to know to have eternal joy in Christ now, no matter what happens tomorrow in those secret things. Note how James puts it in chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I was thinking this morning about this text and my pride was drawn out by it. When the run was made on toilet paper, so many thinking, 
Tomorrow we will go to Walmart and buy our toilet paper. I'm thinking, what stupidity. I'll wait a couple more days and it'll be there. As if I know of what will take place a couple more days from now. Brothers and sisters, do we really think we know what's going to take place, even as Christians? We foolishly think we do. This is the, this is the root, this is the fruit of pride that we must be called to repent of from this word of where Paul says, if God wills, we must come to an understanding that we should be wise in planning. Toilet paper is needed. That's good. Plan for these things. But we must be with the attitude of submission that it is God who knows what's going to take place tomorrow. And when we plan without that heart attitude of humility, we are ripe, we are set up, we are teed up for disappointment, for expectations falling short. Because we have approached our plans with a spirit of pride that we know what is best. Paul's humble, unwavering commitment to the glory of Christ seen in his proclamation in his word of if God wills I will return to you is simply a mere reflection of the humble unwavering commitment of Christ to the glory of the Father. Christ to the point of death even death upon a cross. Philippians chapter 2 is set for us here. And I want to just have us Spend a few moments here. Maybe you turn in there into your Bible. But let me read to you Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And I want to note for us in the few minutes that we have left of this humble, unwavering commitment Christ had to the glory of the Father in His coming to this earth. And may it be not simply that which was the testimony and witness for Paul in his faithfulness to follow Christ, but may it also be for us as well this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let's just consider Christ here for a moment. What does Scripture tell us about Christ? Well, Christ, we know, is the one who created all the glory of the earth that is around us. We know this from, first, from, from Colossians chapter 1. We know Christ was, was there at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 when the Word was spoken into existence. We know He was the, the, the one who had been given by God the Father the authority and the power to create the glory of the good earth. The trees, the sun, the moon, the stars culminating in the human body. And then he puts himself in obedience to the will of the Father's love for us into this creation that has fallen into sin. I have struggled with an illustration to describe this, but my son unknowingly helped me on this this week. My son set about 
to make a cardboard replica of a house that we own. And my brain doesn't work like his. In, in my viewpoint, it was quite the replica. And yet, it was probably not quite the replica, and he's even shaking his head as I say this, in his eyes, and one of the reasons why I know that is because it got stuck in the backyard to just disintegrate in moisture. And yet, if you, if you, from his vantage point, if you looked at this thing, it was one thing to create it, but it was another thing for him to, to, condens- to, to, to condescend to live in that which he created. Amidst all of the strings of hot glue and the draftiness of it and the, the smallness of it, for him to curl himself into that place And then to joyfully submit to that which he had created that had fallen in disrepair and to do so for 33 years. God created a good world, but it's under the curse of sin. It's been corrupted, it's been contaminated, it's been poisoned. And the point isn't to compare my son's creation to the world around us, but to note the level of humility my son would have to display to joyfully submit himself to living in that creation of his for that amount of time and then magnify that, blow that up by a million times and then again And we might scratch the surface of what it would be to describe the wonder of the humility of Christ to come to this earth and to live among us. To take on flesh. To feel pain. When he created a world with no pain. To come and and, and to experience hunger. When he had created a world that needed no hunger, had no hunger, hunger, all of it being resolved in the glory of knowing God, to submit himself to a world where he would die, to save us from our flesh, to take on pain, to demonstrate our life and work doesn't end until God says it is finished. And in the middle of that pain is where God is most glorified. That is your Christ. That is what Christ did out of love for the Father, out of obedience to God the Father, because of God the Father's love for you in your sin. And this is the example of humble unwavering commitment that is set before us and the, 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 the immensity of this is Christ is not only our hope in this life and our hope for all of eternity Christ's devotion to the Father that never wavered in the ups and the downs is precisely for you so when you when we when us waver in the ups and downs when our commitment falters we look to Christ who never falters And his unwavering, humble commitment covers our prideful, wavering commitment.
When we behold the sinless Savior for us, we behold the faithfulness of God for us in our weakness. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who are stirred by the example of Paul, but let us not find our eyes gazing upon Paul. Let us look to Christ, who understand, who is committed to the sovereign will of God, that if God wills, he would do. And may that be our cry as well. Finally, verse 22 and 23 of our text. He lands in Caesarea. He goes up and greets the church that is in Jerusalem. He goes back to the starting place of his missionary journey in Antioch. And he spends some time there. This is the conclusion of the second missionary journey of Paul and the beginning of the third one. A number of months pass between Paul's second and third missionary journey. As many as six years have passed from when Paul first started in his first one and when he's ending in his second journey. The first one beginning in Acts 13 and we're finishing the second one Toward the end of Acts 18, Paul has been imprisoned. Paul has been stoned. Paul has been beaten. He's been rejected. He's been driven out of cities. 1942, the Lord Mayor's luncheon at the Mansion House in London at the, in London, at the height of the Battle of Britain. Winston Churchill uh, spoke. And what he said, in many ways, I think, mirrors the attitude of Paul. He's speaking in the middle of Britain's involvement in World War II. Three years have passed since they've gotten in. It's 1942. They came in in 1939. They'd be in till its end in 1945. And this is what he says. The Germans have received back again that measure of fire and steel which they have so often meted out to others. Now this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And Paul is in many ways ending the beginning and just beginning. He's ending six years. He's ending maybe a third of his ministry. He has 12 to 15 more years to go. And yet he's not pausing for long. His work is not completed. And he launches again into his third journey Verse 23, one place to the next, from the region of Galatia and Phygeria, strengthening all the disciples. The significance of Paul being with the church here must be highlighted as compared to when he's out planting churches. It's two different places and cultures for him. Uh, out there was the place of hostility and difficulty, and in here, with the church is his place of strength and respite. Where he's, he's being with the disciples, he's encouraging them, and we know from other texts, he's being encouraged by them. Brothers and sisters, what we're doing via this live stream over the internet, it's not the church, and it should never be considered or confused as such. Uh, this that which are those together gathering, the body of Christ gathering together, nine of us this morning, that's the church. What you're doing with me is I trust a ministry of the grace of God to get the word of truth to you, but it's not the church. 
It's not the gathering of the saints together with one another. And we should note the grace of the church during times of difficult ministry. This is, it should, the pain, the, the, the longing should, and I trust is, being expressed even by many of you. I want to be with God's people. And Paul is ministered to by the people of God gathered together. The Christian's devotion to God, to follow Christ should not stumble by the ups and downs of life, but instead be energized as we behold his faithfulness to us. You might be sick this morning. I was sick some this week. In the eyes of man, that is a a down. Uh, Maybe your wealth has sprung because of the stock market springing toward the end of the week. By man's view, that is an up. Maybe you've lost your job. That is poverty. In man's view, that is a down. And yet in the economy of God, wealth can also be a down and sickness can be an up. It is his faithfulness. It is his sovereign grace in our lives that as we look to him in times of up or down, as we seek him, as we follow the example set for us by Christ of humble, unwavering devotion, that we're actually energized as we behold his faithfulness to us. Have you seen his faithfulness in Christ to you this week? I trust that we are energized as we look to him, as we trust him, as we seek him, even as we run to him this coming week. Let me close with the quote I brought to us at the beginning from Christian's word as he goes up the hill of difficulty. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go. Than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for this word. You're kind to give it to us. May it land appropriately upon our heart. Oh, Father, we plead with you to as a sharp surgical tool cut where necessary, cut off where necessary, open where necessary, close where necessary the needs of our hearts according to your word. Father, if there is someone that even as they hear of this word, recognize that they have not looked to Jesus Christ, have not been saved from their sin, have not seen the glory of Christ humbled to the point of death, even death upon a cross for sinners, that you would call them to repent of their sin, that you would open their blind eyes to see the glory of Christ, that you would save them. Father, we thank you for the means of grace that is your word. We look and long for the time when we can be with you for all of eternity and in the meantime, be with one another in preparation for that day. We thank you for the time that we've had in your word. May it be for your glory and your glory alone. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.